0: Happy Father's Day to any of you who have just joined us, plan on spending a and sharing a meal with us after the service as we celebrate Father's Day together as a church family. When we look at the term father in the Bible, the the definition of father that is applied often takes the human father and replaces them with the spiritual father. So We know that there is a man named Nun in the Bible, N-U-N. We don't know anything about him. But we know that there is a man named Moses, who is a spiritual father to Joshua, who is the son of Nun, and in many ways the son of Moses. We see Jehoiada literally becomes the father of a a young one-year-old boy named Joash, who the Bible tells us as long as Jehoiada lived 130 years, Joshua was faithful. When Joshua's spiritual father, who became his effectively his earthly father, dies, Joshua beca- or excuse me, Joash becomes unfaithful and makes his way into the gospels for killing Zechariah the son of Barakiah because he was called out for his unfaithfulness and Jesus says from the prophets, or from Amos, or excuse me, from Abel all the way to that Zechariah. When we look in the New Testament, we don't even know Timothy's father's name. We just know he was Greek. But Paul calls Timothy his true son. We don't know specifically who Mark's father's name was, but we know that Peter says that Mark is his true son. And Titus, also a Greek man, becomes the son of a Jewish man, the Apostle Paul, as he addresses him. If I ask you a question this morning, who does the Bible call the firstborn son of God? You may be surprised. We will find out in our message today. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to pray before we begin today. Lord, as we read the story of Jesus, the history book of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask you to teach us and inform us more of the journey that that we have been bound into and and what took place so that that would even be possible. As we look into your word, Lord, guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans chapter 9, the timing of God is interesting. Um, we are going to look at God's corporate election. There are two elections in the Bible. There is the election of an individual who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and all of their hope in Him and acknowledges Him as their Lord, Master, and Savior. Um, The election that is talked about more in the Bible than that election is corporate election, meaning a corporate group of people that God would choose and he chose the nation of Israel. If we were going to read the the book of Romans as if only to Gentiles, we would go from Genesis chapter 8 to Genesis chapter 12 and the story would flow right through there. But Paul knows that it is critical for us to know God's relationship with Israel, how that affects the gospel, and how we can pay tribute to and acknowledge our heritage in the Bible. He will tell us later in the book of Romans that because our spiritual blessings come from Israel, our monetary gifts ought to go back to Israel. Romans 15, So Paul has been addressing the gospel as it relates to Gentiles. He, he addressed corporate election last week as we looked at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. That if you are a servant of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, you rely on what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection, then he foreknew before the creation of the world that you would choose his son. Number one. Number two, he predestined. He determined in advance that you would be like his son. So the goal of God is to make you like his son when it's your choice. If you are a true follower of Christ, he will make you completely other than divine like Christ when the rapture happens. Number three, since he foreknew you and since he predestined you, he calls you. My sheep know my name, Jesus says. So once a person responds to Christ as Lord, then he responds to them as their Lord. So he called them, number three. Number four, he justified them. We are justified by Jesus Christ, who is the justifier. The one who condemns no one justifies those who choose to believe in him. That's Jesus Christ. And also past tense in God's eyes You are glorified. You will have a body that will look like the body of Jesus Christ looks now when the rapture happens. We're studying that on Wednesday night. So those things, those five things are already accomplished before creation in a God who lives outside of time. Too big for our brains, but it should be that way. It should be that the one who created and designed everything is more aware of how this all works than we are. But we know that it's true because the Bible says so. So that's the picture of individual election. That picture will find its way and weave its way into uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about corporate election. People get mistaken in what election is because they read about Israel and they apply it to the church. So Israel is our heritage, but we want to learn about that heritage this morning. First of all, in verse 1, Paul makes this emphatic statement. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart for i wish that i myself were cursed and cut off from christ for the sake of my people those of my own race the people of israel that's a powerful statement the people that hated paul the most were israelites paul Whenever he traveled to a town, the first place he went was the synagogue, the place of worship for a Jew. Invariably, he was often violently kicked out of the synagogue. Each time, that would have broken Paul's heart. He would shake the dust out of his clothes, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He never backed away from his responsibility to call Gentiles to obedience that comes through faith. But he would go in the synagogue first. He would present the truth about Jesus Christ. They would reject Him, expel Him, and oftentimes try to kill Him for doing so. And here Paul tells us, those people that are trying to kill Him, He loves them and wants so badly for them to be saved that He would give up His own salvation. Imagine having a love for someone else that is so extreme that you would give up your hope, your future, and your salvation if they would believe. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I would go to hell if the Jews would believe in Jesus Christ. That's a powerful testimony. That's stronger than my testimony, certainly, but it makes me want to be more like Paul. How important it is to Paul that Israel accept Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. We're going to have a list, I think, of nine things here. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Paul gives these nine things. We're up to ten now because he asks the question at the beginning of chapter 3, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Is there any advantage? Yes, much in every way, he says. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. This, This testimony of Jesus Christ that we hold in our hands was put together by the Jews. And they are responsible for that. So he adds nine more things to that here that, that the Jewish nation of Israel, when it was chosen as a nation, the first one being the adoption to sonship. Let's go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 to answer the question that I began with today. Who is called in the Bible the firstborn son of God? What is happening in Exodus chapter 4 is God, the Son, is actually in presence with Moses. And he is sending Moses to Egypt because God is going to deliver them in what is known as the Exodus. And here he is building a relationship with Moses. Moses asks him who he is, and he explains that he is Yahweh, that he is God, that he is Elohim, and he is explaining his relationship to Abraham and his relationship to those who are now slaves in Egypt. And in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 4, we read, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So that title, given that way, only applies to Israel. The one and only son of God is Jesus Christ. The firstborn son in his plan of election is Israel. And there is no one else, no other group of people, not the church, no one else in the history of man that will have that title. They are like the birthed son of God, when he chooses them. And it's interesting here, he says, they are my firstborn son, and it's actually Jesus speaking. Remember, one of the names of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 is the everlasting father. Jesus is the father of everything in time. So he is our everlasting father, um, which is a, Is a strange sound to us when we read Isaiah, but here he's talking for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but it is Jesus speaking, calling Israel the firstborn son. So we're learning about election. We're going to learn about all of these things that Paul is talking about here. Um, In Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, he takes this relationship of God and his firstborn son, Israel, and then he says, the promise, the promises we're reading about in Genesis and Exodus comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Abraham is the individual that God is now calling the firstborn son, which applies to Israel, which is the name change of Jacob, the, or the grandson of Abraham. So in Romans 4.16, Paul goes on to say, this is for all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the circumcision, not only the Jews, everyone who calls Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior is in this family that God is describing to Moses about 1,446 years before Jesus Christ. Now turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. You can refer to your notes. We're just going to go through them in order. The covenants. We looked at the adoption to sonship. The actually um, stay in Exodus. Sorry, there I made a mistake to Exodus 13 while you're there. You're going to be close to there anyway. The divine glory. In Exodus chapter 13, we see first the divine glory. Um, and you have the verses listed there. We're not going to read all of these, but what is happening in Exodus, they have just left Egypt. They are heading towards the Red Sea. They're at Succoth, and as they leave Succoth, that's the first time they have the divine glory visible to them as a nation. So they have the cloud that leads them them by day and the fire that leads them by night, the divine glory of God. When the tabernacle would be finished, the Ark of the Covenant would be finished, that glory would reside over the covenant. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we see that as soon as the temple is finished and it's dedicated, the divine glory comes into the temple with such power and magnificence that the priests have to stop what they're doing and wait till the glory calms. We see in um, Ezekiel chapter 10 when that glory at 586 BC left because of the unfaithfulness of Israel, and Israel is waiting for the divine glory to return. At the end of the tribulation, when the millennium comes, that divine glory that Paul is talking about here will come back into the temple. And we will be witnesses of that at that time. So in verse 21 and 22, we see this divine glory for the first time. Um, The Lord went ahead of them. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of a cloud to guide them on their way and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light. Turn back now, like I said earlier, to Genesis chapter 15. So Paul says the adoption to sonship. The son, the firstborn son of God, is the sonship that Paul is talking about. Um, and that relates to the church at a verse we will look at later today and how we are grafted into that. But in, he says, that number three, the covenants are Israel's. In Genesis 15, we have this Middle Eastern practice given that splits this animal in half and there are flaming torches and Abraham goes into this and a a dense darkness comes over him and he promises him in this covenant, I will give you the land from the territory of the Wadi of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. So when they went into the promised land, they began taking this territory over and there came a point where they just didn't feel like taking any more over. It was just too much work. So the reality is the promise in Genesis 15 will not be fulfilled until the millennium. When Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom from the wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River, that entire territory will be known as Israel. And Jerusalem will be the capital of it. So in Genesis 15 we can just look at that promise in verse 18. When we go back to the beginning of this, we remember what happens here. We see we have seen Elohim, imaginative one, creative one, the creator. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. When Adam walks in the garden, we see Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal, engaging, relational God. So we go from Elohim to Yahweh, and for the first time in Genesis 15, we see Abraham call him Sovereign Lord in your English translation, but Adonai Yahweh. The first time he calls him Master, Sovereign, King. And he refers to him again in verse 8 as Sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai Yahweh gives him this promise that he believes, and in his belief in the Lord, the one he confessed as the Lord, Abraham has credited righteousness, verse 6. And in verse 18, we see the promise of this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Turn a couple pages to chapter 17. We see another name for God. In verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, and the Hebrew is El Shaddai. So you've probably heard songs or references to that. When you hear El Shaddai, it means God Almighty. Abraham is acknowledging him as the one that is pos- All things are possible. He can do anything. Yahweh, he is self-existent. He needs nothing. You can't add anything to him. He is all things within Yahweh, God Almighty. Nothing is impossible. Whatever God says he's going to do, he can do because there's nothing that he can't do. Genesis 17, El Shaddai. Um, He gives him a promise in verse 5 that he will change his name from Abram to Abraham, which is the father of many nations, Um, We drop down through the chapter, verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is the covenant of circumcision where he is recognized as Yahweh El Shaddai in the opening verses. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign. It doesn't save Abraham. It doesn't bring him closer to God, but it is a personal testimony on his physical body that he is a follower of Yahweh. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old, Jesus parents obeyed this in Luke chapter 2 must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money as a foreigner those who are not your offspring so anyone who has anything to do with Abraham from this moment forward must be circumcised if they are a male and that covenant is the covenant that Paul is talking about one of them as we look in Romans chapter 9. Um, Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. Actually, let's move on to Jeremiah in the interest of time. In the covenants, this is the primary covenant we want to refer to. Jeremiah chapter 31. What happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that David receives the promise that the Messiah will be in the kingly line of David. So that's a covenant, the Davidic, the David covenant, made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see a, an important statement there when he is talking about Solomon to David and he says I will never remove my love from Solomon as I removed it from Saul telling us literally that Saul will not be in heaven experiencing the love of God and Jeremiah 31 I want to look at the covenant but first drop down to verse 9 before we get to the covenant they will come weeping they will pray as I bring them back I will lead them beside the streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father. Remember, he's the firstborn son. And Ephraim is my firstborn son. So when we read back in Exodus chapter 4, this term, firstborn son, goes primarily to the second son of Joseph. So we think of how this happens. If we went back into Genesis chapter 35, actually, if we go back a few chapters before that, um, Abraham goes, or Abraham, Jacob goes back to Paden Aram to get a wife, the same way his father Isaac did. He gets there, he prays about it. Out comes Rachel. Jacob calls for her to be his wife. He goes to Laban, her father, and he says, "Okay." Then they trick. Jacob and put Leah in his bed at night. So Rachel is the choice of God to be the wife of Jacob. Her firstborn son is Joseph. When we look at the firstborn son of Jacob, the family line comes through Leah and Billah. And Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob, but he is not considered the firstborn son of Jacob. We will learn in 1 Chronicles 5, we will learn in, I think, Exodus chapter 48, that what happens is Reuben goes into his father's concubine's bed. And you can take it from there. And because of that, the firstborn rights are taken from Reuben, not given to the second, third, fourth, fifth, or tenth son, but given to the firstborn son of Rachel. So the firstborn rights of Jacob go to his eleventhborn son, Joseph. Now we see a lot of that interchanging going forward. So what we saw with, with first of all, with Jacob and Esau, we saw with Go backwards to Abraham. Who is Abraham's literal firstborn son? Ishmael is. But God says, no, it's through Isaac and Sarah. Then we go to the next generation, and Rebekah has two sons. One of them is Esau, and one of them is Jacob. They're twins, but Esau comes out first. And God says, no, it's going to go to Jacob. Then Jacob has Twelve sons, and the second to the last son, God says, He is the line of the firstborn son. And then Jacob, at 137 years old, in Goshen, Joseph brings his two sons before his father Jacob. Jacob is sitting here, so Jacob's right hand is here, and his left hand is here. Manasseh is Joseph's oldest son. So he says, Manasseh, you stand here. My father, who is blind is going to bless you, and Ephraim, you stand here by his left hand, and Jacob is sitting there like this, and he goes like this. And Joseph gets a little bit di- disappointed in his father, and he grabs his father's hands, and Jacob says, no." He says, "Ephraim receives the birthright. So Ephraim becomes one of Joseph, or Jacob's sons. So we read here in Jeremiah chapter 31 that the rights of the firstborn of God fall on Ephraim. Not Ishmael, not Esau, not Reuben. Ephraim, Joseph's second born son. So we're following this through the scriptures. We're coming to the most important covenant in the Old Testament, which is the New Covenant the covenant that you and I are grafted into today. We drop down in chapter 31 to verse, 30, verse 31, and here is our covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, we also see this marriage relationship with Israel, declares the Lord. Verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. This is what Paul is going to explain to us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, in particular chapter 11. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, and here's the focus of the second covenant. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This covenant, the new covenant, So when Jesus and Paul would say, the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is talking about this covenant. I will forgive them of their sins and remember their sins no more. This is individual election. So the covenant that he makes that is new with Israel now requires their response, their submission, their committedness, their surrender to Jesus Christ to be grafted into this covenant. So Paul will explain in Romans 9, 10, and 11, both of them, that I chose Israel, but that doesn't mean they're all saved. But everyone in the new covenant is saved. Jeremiah chapter 31. Next in our list, you don't have to go back there to Romans chapter 9, is the receiving of the law. We won't turn there. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. The temple worship... um, That is in 1 Kings. I wrote 1 through 66. That's one of the longest chapters, maybe the second longest I'd have to look in the Old Testament after Psalms 119. And it is this dedication of worship at the temple. And the verses that we could look at in our notes there in 1 Kings, you could add, you could write down verses 41 through 43 where Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks to Gentiles. Offers for foreigners to turn to the God of Israel. Offers for Gentiles to look to the God of the temple in Jerusalem. Probably nothing to do with Solomon's ideas or his wisdom, but the Holy Spirit speaking through Solomon. So the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Um, The book of Isaiah has over 1,000 promises in it. There are 8,800 promises in the Bible. The the book in the Bible, the chapter in the Bible that has the most promises is Psalm 37. So question, these 1,000 promises in Isaiah, every promise in the Old Testament where most of them are found, when will they be realized? I could ask a different question. Why does there have to be a millennium? Because every promise given to Israel will be fulfilled in the millennium. In that thousand year reign of Christ physically on earth before the new heaven and the new earth, every promise made to Israel will be fulfilled. Most of Christendom is operating under replacement theology where Israel no longer is in God's plans. God has nothing to do with Israel. The two largest churches in our hometown have written Israel out of the Bible, out of the future. And to be honest, most of the evangelical church has done the same thing. Without Israel, no one gets saved. When you get saved, you are grafted into the covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus says in John 4.22 to the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. So all of these things that came to Israel are things that bless us, the patriarchs. um, There are many verses for this, but when Jesus says to the Sadducees, he says, Um, you don't understand the resurrection. He says to them, and he's quoting uh, Exodus 3, 6, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, in Exodus chapter 3, they've all been dead for quite a while. And certainly in Jesus' time, they've been dead for a long time from human observation. But what Jesus is proving as the God of the resurrection is that none of them are dead. I am their God. I am the God of the living. And by saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is saying I am the eternal God over eternal beings in my image. The Messiah, he said, are the patriarchs, the Messiah. Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is the genealogical record of Jesus Christ from Abraham to the throne. So it begins by addressing the two key players in the genealogy to Christ. Abraham and David. Abraham is the one that God chooses out of the nations of the world and David is the one who has the promise of the throne right to Jesus Christ. Um, And actually, let's... I will just, we'll continue to move forward. Um, But the Messiah um, we find in the genealogy that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 6 as we go back to Romans chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul begins with, I would give up my salvation if God's firstborn son, Israel, would accept God's one and only son as their savior. And then he says these nine things are all given to Israel. Um, If we we didn't turn there, but if we would have gone to Deuteronomy, for example, I think it's chapter 9, De- or Deuteronomy chapter 4, where he says to Israel three times in a row, he says, it's not because you're righteous, Israel. It's because the nations around you are wicked. And then uh, two verses later he says, it's not because you're righteous. So the, the corporate election is different. They didn't have to worship God to receive blessings. They had to follow the rituals. They had to follow the the... The, the, the symbols of atonement, they had to do those things. But as we go all the way through Israel, the vast majority of Israelites never believed in God, never trusted God for their salvation. But he chooses them because of the wickedness of the nations around them, and he will bless them materially and otherwise if they will just follow his covenants that he has given So in verse 6, then, we see this picture of corporate election. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What Paul is saying theologically here is the true Israel of God. Galatians, I think it's 6.16. is the only time in the New Testament it is written, the Israel of God. What is the Israel of God? The Israel of God is believers in Jesus Christ who are Jews. So the Israel of God he is, he is referring to here, he is saying, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not every descendant of Abraham is in the Israel of God. Verse 7, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. I mentioned earlier in. in Romans 4.16, that the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. He is making clear in Romans 4, the believers in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles. So he's saying here, you're not Abraham's offspring spiritually because you're his offspring physically. It is not reading, or on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He is pointing to the election of Isaac. And he is speaking now about the election of individuals. And so Ishmael was Abraham's son. He's not going to be in heaven, from what we know about him. Um, And when we look at the descendants of Israel today, most of them don't believe. But Paul is going to explain to us that there will be a day where all the believers will be grabbed are gathered together in the tribulation and all of them, he will tell us in Romans 11, will be saved. Um, Verse 8, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. Without that faith acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord, you're not in the promise. The promise that God gave to Abraham, the promise that is to us. It isn't who is our physical father that matters. It is who our spiritual father is that matters. Verse 9, For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time, I will return. And Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So he is taking us through the progression here. Ishmael wasn't the chosen son because his descendants were not going to believe. Isaac's descendants were going to believe. Not all of them but only through this line of faith that comes from Abraham. Rebekah has two sons in her. It's not going to be that they're both going to be believers. The election is going to go forward based on individuals. So, verse um, 11, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. In God's foreknowledge, he knows the choices of Jacob. He knows the choices of Esau. And he can operate in that knowledge. So, He knows what you're going to do this afternoon. He knows everything in advance. He knows about the descendants of Esau and how that all begins. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. What happens when you don't look at what Paul is saying, when you don't go to where he's saying it from, people say, God says that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So he loves some people and he hates some people. Paul is explaining to us, God knows the future. God knows who will believe. God knows who won't. And he can predetermine the path of those who will. And he can predetermine the path of those who won't. And he can use them both. Just like he used Pharaoh in the Old Testament. So, when we turn to Genesis chapter 25, Paul says, for just as with Rebekah, there were two in the womb. And he says, the older will serve the younger. And he goes on to say, before they had done anything right or wrong, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So, we go back to the womb. We go back when Rebekah is pregnant with Jacob and Esau. And we pick it up in verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel and the the Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. You can see the family lines there with Rachel and Laban already in this picture. Verse 21 Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, just like Abraham was, Abraham and Sarah. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, To what? Nations are in your womb. So when you hear about Calvinism and you hear about God loves some people and He doesn't love people, who does God love? Esau or Jacob? Yes. What does God know? Everything. Every choice. Every end. So these two babies are going at it literally in the womb. She's probably visible going down the street with her her stomach jostling because these two boys are, even in the womb, there's contention there. And it's interesting that during this pregnancy, in fact, during their lives, the communication line goes around Isaac. We don't know much about Isaac, truth be told, in the Bible, but we know about Rebekah. Rebecca goes and inquires of the Lord. She goes out to God and say, God, what's going on here? What's happening in my womb? Why are they fighting? And we read verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older, will serve the younger. That's where Paul is quoting from. So the prophecy given to Rebekah is that the stronger one is going to be the younger one. The, the one who the promise comes through is going to be the younger one. And in fact, the one who comes out first is going to serve the younger one. This prophecy is specifically fulfilled when King David makes the Edomites... Slaves to the Israelites. Um, but as we go forward with this promise, let's go to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27, verse 28. We're kind of leaping forward to what happens. We, we see that... Um, Esau gives up his birthright to Jacob for a meal. And then Rebekah comes up with a plan. She hears Isaac in the tent. He's talking to Esau. She says, Esau, I'm really old. Um, Don't know how much longer I'll be around. Go out and make me a meal like you know how. Come in and I'm going to give you my blessing. Rebekah hears this. Rebecca has already heard from God many years earlier... Malachi chapter 1, the second place that Paul is quoting. And when you look at the Old Testament, you realize that it's impossible for anyone in the New Testament to say, God just loves some people and He just hates some people. He knows all about Esau. When, When you turn on the television now, and you watch the Middle East, you'll get a corrupted view. It's, it's impossible in the United States of America to see what's truly happening in Israel because our current government hates Israel. All media in the United States is biased against Israel. But when you see the Hamas and you see these different people launching rockets in 2021 into Tel Aviv and towards Jerusalem, these are descendants of Esau. In fact, Esau marries Ishmael's daughter. And Ishmael and Esau, their family lines, hate Israel from Genesis to today. And it's not going to end. So you have the descendants of um, Esau, for example, and Ishmael. These people are surrounding what is called Palestine today. They're in Psalms 83, God is going to permanently deal with them and He's going to extinguish them early in the tribulation, if not before. So these promises are not based on, Esau, I just don't love you. They're based on Esau is going to hate Jacob forever and Jacob is going to love Yahweh. And I know that in advance. So in Malachi chapter 1, the last book in the Old Testament, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, "Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Why? Because they're always against the Lord. When they come out of the promise or the, the Red Sea, they immediately face opposition. And the opposition is Amalekites, who are descendants of Edomites. And then they come to Edom and they say, look, we won't take any water, we don't want any food, we just want to go where we're going. No, your feet can't touch our ground. You read all through the Old Testament and they always celebrate in Edom whenever Judah is punished. These people hate. So when Jesus Christ, according to the prophets, when he comes back to earth, there is going to be Armageddon, there is going to be the nations gathered, but he is going to deal personally with Babylon, with Edom, or Esau, the Edomites, with the Moabites, and the Ammonites. These are the peoples surrounding Israel today that are constantly assaulting Israel in 2021, meaning that all this time hatred has never ceased. He tells Moses in Exodus the Amalekites need to be wiped out because they will never, they will always, I should say, be against God. They will always be against Israel. God never condemns. I don't want you, God. I don't want your promise. I don't want anything of you. I'm certainly not going to obey you. Okay, done. That's what he is doing when way back in the womb, he says, Esau I've hated, but Jacob I love. I know your future. I know your future. It breaks his heart to hear Esau's future. Turn back to Obadiah. That's a hard book to find. Just a few books, not too many pages back. Amos, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. If you're close in that area, So Isaiah writes oracles about the final destruction of of Edom, of Esau's descendants. Jeremiah writes oracles about it. Malachi we just read about it. Paul is writing about it. The book of Obadiah, it's only one chapter, but it is a prophecy, the entire chapter, devoted to how God is going to deal with the descendants of Esau. We follow Esau all the way to Jerusalem, when Jesus is being born, Herod is a descendant of Esau. Um, And we see here, we'll just read a couple verses. Verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 18, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. There's that line again. Who's his firstborn son, Jeremiah 31, 9? Ephraim. Whose son is Ephraim? Joseph. Whose son is Joseph? Rachel. Um, so he's connecting Jacob and Rachel um, there. Esau, it says here in verse 18, will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors. The Lord has spoken. If you were born in the nation of Esau's descendants, can you be born again? Absolutely. This nation, is this nation ever going to escape destruction? Absolutely not. The same is true about Moab. Who's a famous person from Moab? Ruth. Ruth going to be in heaven? Absolutely. The nation of Moab, cursed and going to be dealt with? Absolutely. Um, similarly to Israel's being um, hardened currently. Actually, turn in your Bible to um, chapter 63 of Isaiah. When we see the, the final destruction of Edom. Isaiah chapter 63, I'm pretty sure it's 63, yes. You've got these two chapters close together, so let's try the first, tie the first coming and the second coming together to earth. To the Jews, remember, they know nothing about the rapture. They're never taught the rapture. Jesus doesn't even teach the rapture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They know about the coming kingdom of God. And that's when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation. So in chapter 61, early in Jesus' ministry, in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he asks for a scroll of Isaiah and he begins reading Isaiah chapter 61. And if you were listening and looking for Jesus, I would think the hair on your arms would stand up when he was done with this. He picks this up and he reads it, hands back the scroll and says, I'm here. This is now. Today is the year of the Lord's favor. So he starts quoting, and he's quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the, in Luke 4, 14 through 20, he says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release From darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that the fulfillment of Jubilee is the coming of Christ. So Paul says, Now is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the Jubilee of Jubilees. Jesus, in verse 2, he quotes um, in Nazareth, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops. He cuts off in the middle of a sentence. Because if they will accept Him, then the kingdom comes then. But he's an omniscient God. He knows everything. So the second half of verse two is a day of vengeance for our God to comfort all who mourn. The 63, then Isaiah 63:1, we see this vengeance, and we see where Jesus is coming from. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, which is a prominent city in Edom, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? This is Jesus speaking, by the way. I have trodden the winepress alone, from the nations, no one was with me. What a pretty picture of the church in the end right there. I trampled them in my anger. The trod, I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me a day of vengeance. Second half of 61 verse 2. The year for the Lord to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured out, poured their blood on the ground. That's a gruesome picture. That's a literal picture. Revelation 14, Revelation 19, Revelation 16, when Jesus returns at Armageddon. He comes to destroy the nations after he selects a few nations to destroy on his own. The reason his robe is covered in blood in the tribulation is because he's come from Basra. He's come from Edom. These people who have rejected him, think about it. If if they're in the tribulation, everyone has rejected him to begin with. And he destroys them personally. Let's go back to... um, Romans chapter 9, we've got a few more verses. In the genealogies, as you're turning there, we see the genealogies of Edom, I think in 1 Chronicles, um, I think it's chapter 5, and in Genesis 36, we have this genealogy of Edom, Eliphaz, and Teman. So Eliphaz, the Temanite... um, is described multiple times in the Bible, and he's probably the first person speaking to Job, because it says in Job, I think chapter four, Eliaphaz the Temanite. So he's probably a descendant of Esau, encouraging Job to curse God and um, that it's Job's fault, which would kind of make sense. Verse fourteen of Romans nine. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Romans eleven thirty two. in the same text, God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on everyone. But it's our choice. Verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So we're looking at nations here. We don't have time to go back. If we went back to Genesis chapter 7, or Exodus chapter 7, the first five verses, he is explaining to Moses, you're going to do this, this, and this, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. So in the progression of the plagues, when the plagues of the gnats come, during that plague, up to this time, God has done things that counterfeit miracles could appear to do the same, like the blood and the frogs and things like that. When he, when he brings the gnats and he covers the lands, the, the magicians, the, the sorcerers, and the, the influencers to Pharaoh say, this is God. In fact, their exact word is, this can be nothing other than the finger of God. So when the gnats come, the officials in Egypt believe in Yahweh. What they do with that, we don't know for sure, but they believed in Him. And then when we get into chapter 8, verses 17 through 23, we see the flies come as a plague. And when the flies come, there's a line drawn so that Goshen, where the Israelites are, not one fly, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like, but a plague of flies that has a distinct line that you could literally walk into the flies and walk out of them. Israel believes. And when we see the Exodus in chapter twelve, by the time they live or leave, it says God had made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites. They gathered that the Israelites were here, take my jewelry, take my rings, take my necklaces, take everything. And they would use that later to make the articles in the tabernacle where they worshipped Yahweh. And then we read a little bit farther down in chapter 12 and it says, many of them went with them. So we probably have a couple million Jews and many others. The point that Paul is making here is when God says, I will, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will pour my wrath on whom I will pour wrath, he says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for a purpose. I know that you're never going to believe. And God says, I can use that. It's going to take a list of plagues because your heart is hardened. You are stubborn. But that progresses from, initially, the Israelites, Moses, get out of here. You're just making things worse. And then the plagues start happening. And then the line is drawn. The Israelites believe. The gnats come. Pharaoh's a servants and his magicians believe by the time they leave Egypt the only person described as not believing is Pharaoh he ain't moving I don't want you God everybody else is leaving because they have seen and God told Moses before they went in they will know that I am the Lord Exodus chapter 7 so God wants all men to be saved. If it would help Tammy to be saved, to see someone suffer for rejecting God, who will never believe, he'll use it. If it helps Trekker to be saved because Tina is faithful to God, he'll use that. What Paul is going to describe in the rest of Romans 9 is, I'll use it all. You don't want me? Okay. You sure? Yes, okay, I'll use you so the person next to you will believe so that they will know who God is and whatever it takes. Does he want Pharaoh to believe? Absolutely. Does he want everyone to believe? Absolutely. He will use everything and everyone at his disposal so that the most will believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a heritage that begins with Adam, really. But Paul is explaining to us that our salvation, our heritage, our promises, the covenants, the promises, the, all of those things that we're grafted into, none of them came through Gentiles. So we thank you for your people, Israel. We pray right now for your people, Israel. We know that it's going to continue to get worse I pray that the the suffering in Israel would lead your people to follow your son. And I pray that we would be faithful to, to tell your history, your story, including your firstborn, Israel. In Jesus' name, amen.